Hello and welcome to our audience. Thank you for joining us today. We're delighted to be running this webinar where we have two speakers discussing geopolymer concrete and its applications. I'm the moderator in this session. My name is Eliz. If you are experiencing any technical issues, you can contact me by using the chat box that you see in your sidebar. This session is proudly brought to you by Osroads. We support our member organisations, those listed on this slide, to deliver an improved road transport network. Our collective approach delivers value for money, encourages shared knowledge and drives consistency for road users. Here at Osroads, we use a program management approach where each program focuses on an operational area of the road system. The Osroads project we will be talking about shortly falls under the assets program. So we have a huge session today and lots of content to cover. Our presenters will present for approximately 60 minutes altogether. We then have 15 minutes at the end where we answer your questions. Just to note, we are recording today's session and we'll email you after the webinar when it's available on our website. The slides to this webinar is also available to download in the handout section. We do like our webinars to be interactive and we encourage you to participate by asking our presenters any questions. You can type your questions into the questions box that you can see into your sidebar at any stage. To help us answer your questions as best as we can, we ask that you indicate the slide number your question relates to. We'll then answer them at the end during question time. The content in this webinar is based on some reports that Osteroids released over the past few years. You can download these reports in the handout section in your sidebar or through the link shown on this slide. So without further delay, I'd like to introduce our two speakers joining us remotely from Melbourne. Our first presenter is Dr. Ahmed Cheyan, who is a Chief Research Scientist at ARB in the area of durability of concrete materials and structures and value-added utilisation of waste materials in concrete. How are you today, Ahmed? Well, thank you, Elise. Uh, good morning, everybody. Excellent to hear. Our second speaker is Fred Andrews Fedonos, who is a Principal Engineer Concrete Technology at Vicros and is a Technical Specialist in the areas of Concrete Technology, Concrete Durability and Bridge Construction. Hi Fred, thank you for joining us. Good day Elise and good afternoon uh, ladies and gentlemen. So on this slide we have the topics which we'll cover and I'll now pass it on to Ahmed. Thanks very much Elise. Um, Yes, uh, today uh, we are two people presenting the webinar. Uh, you can see on the left the topics and on the right hand side presenters. So I will be talking about the background to uh, geopolymer uh, project, the Oslo geopolymer project, uh, which includes the literature review that we conducted and experimental work. Um, after that, uh, Fred will take over and we'll talk about the specification and use of geopolymer concrete, field application of concrete, especially with the experience that Vicros has had and geopolymer concrete pipes and the impediments which are at the present existing in the wider use of geopolymer concrete. In the end, uh, both of us will answer your questions. So uh, now we are talking about the background to this project. Uh, the project team, uh, essentially this is an Osroads project. So uh, Fred, 
uh, Andrew Svedanis uh, is the Astros project manager. Uh, I'm the project leader from AWRB, and uh, my colleagues here are Dr. Anin Zhu, who contributed to the experimental work, and um, now Dr. Chandani Tenekun. At the time, she was being a PhD candidate from Swinburne University, supervised by myself and Professor uh, Jason Jain. The review team consisted of um, ASO's working group, um, including all the road authorities, and specifically uh, ASO's bridge task force, which reviewed all the work, and finally ASO's board, which endorsed um, uh, all the outcome of the projects after approval by the ASO's program manager. Um, so, as you see in this slide, um, the contributors to the review of this project came from all the states of Australia and New Zealand. I won't name everyone by name, but you can see the distribution of the input that we had. Okay, now to the technical part of it. And um, because we are talking about geopolymer concrete, uh, we first look at Portland cement concrete. As everybody knows, Portland cement concrete is made up of Portland cement, which is the binder plus aggregate, supplementary cementitious materials, water and chemical admixture. In this mix, Portland cement is a very energy intensive material. You have to burn limestone and clay at high temperature, 1300 degrees or so, and then you get cement clinker plus a lot of emission. Uh, approximately, uh, there's, uh, this is not a very accurate figure, one ton of cement generates roughly one ton of CO2. On the other hand, geopolymer concrete uh, is made up of a binder, which you see here in green, aluminosilicate byproducts, which are also called precursors plus alkali activators. Then we have aggregate and water. So essentially the uh, mix of concrete is the same, but the binder is different. Uh, one important point is that there is no standard formulation for geopolymer binder, whereas Portland cement is standardized. However, the process of geopolymer concrete production does not produce carbon dioxide the way Portland cement concrete does. Moreover, the use of waste materials rather than virgin materials is another environmental benefit. So the use of geopolymer concrete can bring at least two environmental benefits and probably a cost saving as well. Um, given the um, issues related to global warming, the road authorities have been very keen to reduce their carbon dioxide footprint. And uh, at the same time, the industry has been active in developing geopolymer concrete uh, as a construction material. Um, however, unfortunately, this uh, development involved um, a proprietary material and details of the geopolymer concrete were not available to the public. So ASROS essentially decided to generate transparent information, mostly for the use of the uh, 
road authorities. So this geopolymer concrete um, was established by us roads included, as I said before, a literature review in 2012 to 13. Um, and then we, um, conducted experimental work based on the outcome of the literature review. And in uh, the end of this experimental work and using the literature review data, um, we prepared a, a brief guide to geopolymer concrete and the specification, uh, which has been published. All these three documents are available for you to download. So um, going to the literature review, at the time that the project started, there were probably maybe 100, 150 published papers. By the time we finished the project, there were probably 400 papers. <coughs> in, so there was a lot of activity going on. I'm only summarizing very briefly um, the outcome of the literature report, uh, literature review and um, what we found as important parameters. So the chemical composition and mineralogy of precursor materials are very important and affect the properties uh, of the resulting geopolymer concrete. The amount, form, whether solid or liquid, and type of alkali activator, whether it's for instance, sodium-based or potassium-based, uh, and the optimum sodium to aluminum ratio, which from the literature was in the range of 1 to 1.5. Silica to alumina ratio also is important in terms of um, property development. The optimum range was 2.5 to 4. And also the presence of a source of calcium, whether it's uh, some mixture with Portland cement or blast furnace slag or lime, um, has a, an important role to play in the strength development of geopolymer concrete. Uh, another important point um, is the ratio of water to total solids. This is similar to the effect of water to bind the ratio in normal concrete. Also ambient curing temperature versus heat curing uh, for some mixes, this is very important. And the same as normal concrete, you get accelerated strength development. Um, so these uh, systems, whether they are low calcium or uh, high calcium, um, they generate different reaction products. In the low calcium system, which is mostly low calcium fly ashes and perhaps uh, metal kaolinate and this sort of um, precursor, um, you have one type of product in a high calcium system like a slag, or you have mixtures of slag and fly ash or lime, you get a different product. The low calcium geopolymer produces mostly amorphous alkali aluminosilicate gel, or NASH, and this is called the geopolymer gel, and we also get some nanocrystalline zeolites. In the high calcium system, uh, we get a lot of calcium silicate hydrate, which are uh, like the products of Portland cement hydration. Uh, also calcium aluminum silicate hydrate, which is al actually calcium alkali aluminum silicate hydrate as well. These types of products, as uh, we will see later, affect 
the properties of the resulting geopolymer. Another important point from the literature review, we found that there are gaps in information. Most of the work was done because um, uh, people use different types of geopolymers. As I said, there's no standard geopolymer formulation. So we get a whole lot of varying results. Most of the strength development was done for short term, up to 56 days. Uh, so uh, it was not immediately apparent whether strength regression is possible in the long term. Um, also, whether geopolymer concrete is susceptible to alkali aggregate reaction. The information at the time we started the project was insufficient. Whether there is um, enough alkalinity in the pore solution of geopolymer concrete to protect the steel from corrosion, that was <laughs> not clear. And uh, whether the test methods which have been developed for Portland cement concrete are applicable to geopolymer concrete as well. And these are like AAR, carbonation, rapid crud, penetration, and the like. So, um, yeah, based on the outcome of the um, literature review, we designed some experimental work, which I'll go through now. Essentially, we use commercially available materials like fly ash, slag, and also the liquid and um, solid uh, alkali activators. Uh, essentially, the precursor formulation we started from a very wide range of 0 to 100%, 100% to 0 in each one. But the water to cement ratio was limited to this base uh, 0.38 to 0.4. Uh, based on the test that we had done in the lab. The alkali activator was sodium uh, silicate solution with silica modulus of two. And um, when this was used by itself, the amount of um, activator was equivalent of four to 6% sodium oxide by mass of precursor. We also used solid sodium metal silicates, which was uh, either anhydrous or pentahydrate. Uh, we didn't use potassium-based products largely because uh, they are a lot more expensive. Uh, in terms of assessment methods, uh, basically, first, we used rheology and strength development as the first criteria, all the mixes uh, we try to see whether they give in proper properties. Then we check the effect of humidity, curing temperature, and age on the strength development um, of uh, paste and then mortar. All the precursors and the products were then characterized by uh, techniques such as X-ray diffraction, nuclear magnetic resonance, and scanning electron microscopy, and energy dispersive X-ray analysis. Uh, formulations which produced uh, satisfactory results in terms of rheology and strength development were then selected for use in concrete. So uh, we had the 19 mixes uh, 
designed based on the various combinations of precursor materials and activators. And as you see here, most of the mixes which we tried uh, at the age of 28 days developed a strength of um, over 40 degrees, uh, 40 MPa, sorry. Uh, except for this mix, mix 13, uh, which had a lot of fly ash and it was a very stiff mix and wasn't uh, compactable properly. So the concrete mixes which we selected out of um, the initial trials are given here. There are four mixes. Uh, which range uh, from 60 to 40 of flash slag, 50, 50, 40, 60, and 100% slag. And you see the binder content, which is uh, 400 kilogram per cubic meter, uh, and the amount of um, the sodium uh, metasilicate, in this case, pentahydrate. We found that pentahydrate produced a more workable concrete. Um, the 13% reflects the amount of pentahydrate in the concrete, which is approximately 4% Na2O. And then you see the rest of the aggregate content and the water to solid ratio, which is uh, approximately um, the same as water binder ratio in a good quality concrete, Portland cement concrete. So um, long-term strength development, um, we see here that uh, up to 600 days of strength development data and uh, for different mixes, 60, 40, 50, 50, 40, 60, and slag, pure slag. Um, so essentially all of these mixes uh, at 28 days exceeded 45 megapascals. And by the age of 90 days, they exceeded 50. And essentially, the strength was more or less unchanged uh, in the last um, couple of years. That means that the geopolymerization more or less was complete, <coughs> even uh, at early ages. In terms of drying shrinkage, um, this is a typical uh, example uh, of short-term drying shrinkage up to 120 days. The specification um, for AS3600 or AS5100 requires less than 750 micro strain at 56 days, which is here. And in this case, you see that this has reached only 500. So drying shrinkage was satisfactory for all the mixes. And then we tried long-term shrinkage, which goes now up to 650 days. And um, except for this mix, um, which has 100% slag, uh, geopolymer based on 100% slag, uh, the values of giant shrinkage in the long term, uh, up to even um, 400 days are still below 700 microstrain. 7800. Uh, so the effect of different binders, uh, you see here, the slack causes uh, a higher shrinkage, probably because it has more of the calcium silicate hydrate component than the 
calcium aluminum silicate and component. The effect of water to bind the ratio which were tried at the 50-50 slag, and you see that most of them are very similar. And again, if you go by the specification at uh, 56 days, uh, it's about 500 microstrain. Flexural strength um, was excellent compared to what we see from similar compressive strength of Portland cement concrete. Um, these are much higher than you would get from 40 MPA in Portland cement concrete. And um, this graph here shows that uh, the relationship by AS3600, which was developed for Portland cement concrete, uh, does not produce a good fit to the actual experimental data. That means that if you use AS3600, you would underestimate the flexural strength of geopolymer concrete of this sort of formulation. Uh, here are the results of stress-strain behavior. Um, so uh, these specimens were subjected to um, measurement of stress against uh, axial strain and radial strain. Essentially, these behave very similarly. Unfortunately, we had problem with the LVTTs in this last 60-40 fly ash um, mix, and uh, the results were not very accurate. Otherwise, um, the range of um, the range of stress, uh, the range of a strain at peak stress. Uh, which is 2.1 to 2.5 in these ones, axial strain, are similar to the Portland cement concrete values. Uh, for the slag, there seems to be um, a lot more strain at lower stress, which meant that the load capacity of uh, the slag concrete, geopolymer concrete, was not as high as the other ones. Another difference was that the geopolymer concrete failed explosively, like high-strength concrete, uh, whereas the slag or the normal concrete fails gradually. So this behavior is influenced by the type of product which formed in the concrete. The cross-linked geopolymer gel, which forms in the mixtures, um, causes a brittle failure, whereas um, when the normal concrete or high slack concrete is used because of the calcium silicate hydrate, there's more ductility. Elastic modulus uh, was tested as well. And you see the modulus is uh, quite good uh, in terms of um, prediction of modulus of elasticity from compressive strength. Uh, usually, the AS, ACR318 would overestimate the modulus of elasticity of geopolymer concrete. And this goes for both 28 and 600 days. And the same with um, AS3600. The Poisson's ratio essentially was similar to the ordinary concrete, Portland cement concrete. In terms of VPV, 
you see that we have tested different mixes, three sections in each mix, in each cylinder, top, middle, bottom. They give different values because of the compaction, which is different at different parts of cylinder. Here are the averages of the values and the density. So for the mixture which are made from blends, we get approximately 17% uh, VPV, whereas for the slag one, we get 19% VPV. And uh, that essentially means that there's more moisture kept in the 100 slag concrete. And the process of VPV determination essentially picks that up. So, um, compared to the specifications like Vicro's specification section 610, which requires a 14% uh, VPV for a 40 MPA concrete, uh, as you saw, we had 17 and 18%, which could indicate higher porosity, but in fact, um, in some other work, we have shown that this uh, high VPV could be related to the type of product which form in, in the concrete and it has more hydrous than normal concrete and loss of water from them is looked at as if it was high VPV, but it may not be related to porosity. Okay, alkali aggregate reaction. Um, we have um, here, um, two tests. One is the accelerated motor bar test method. And in that, um, we have tested a non-reactive aggregate with different geopolymers. And you see there is no expansion here, which indicates that the geopolymer <coughs> bind itself is not causing expansion. Then when we have reactive aggregate, we see that the Portland cement concrete um, and 100% the slag concrete cause expansion with reactive aggregate, whereas the blended geopolymer concrete did not. Now, this we worked out that had to do with the slag content. So anything above 80% the slag would cause expansion, and that's related to the calcium content of the system. Um, so more ratio of calcium to total oxides in these two mixes which cause expansion are much higher than the other ones. So if we have 20% um, fly ash or more in the binder, then the motor bot test would uh, indicate that the mix is non-expansive. We also use concrete prism test, and again, non-reactive aggregate produced non, no expansion. Um, when we use the, um, a reactive aggregate, this is just for Portland cement, which we would expect to have expansion, but all the geopolymer binders at alkali content of 4% didn't cause expansion. At 6%, however, the mix which was made of 100% slag did cause a slight expansion. Uh, so again, uh, if we have um, a sufficient fly ash in the system, the expansion will be prevented. And um, this is related to the composition um, and type of material which forms in the um, type of geopolymer concrete. 
Here we see 50-50 um, uh, slag, which produced uh, sodium aluminosilicate gel, which is geopolymer binder. And the same um, product is formed in the 46 to 60-40. Uh, for comparison, if you look at 100% the slag, we have both uh, here the sodium aluminosilicate binder and we have the alkali aggregate reaction product, which is sodium silicate, sodium calcium silicate. Uh, when we have Portland cement, the composition of product is again sodium uh, silicate and calcium. So it's um, sodium silicate gel plus calcium. So these two are similar. That, that means that reaction alkali reaction can take place in both. Um, we tried to see how much alkali is left in the system after the expansion test. So this is uh, for different mixes uh, and the initial amount of alkali added. And after the test, we were able to recover quite a lot of alkali. So there's still alkali left in the system in terms of Concern about reinforcement corrosion, the alkalinity is maintained. Sulfate resistance um, test showed that where Portland cement concrete uh, exposed to 5% sodium uh, sulfate uh, caused a lot of expansion, the geopolymer concrete did not. Um, the sulfate attack um, caused the reduction in the strength um, in normal ordinary Portland cement concrete, whereas in the geopolymer concrete it did not, which is consistent with the lack of expansion here. Uh, in fact, in the long term, the, the, the strength went up, and that's we think is because the um, sulfate uh, actually act further activated the slag. Carbonation uh, testing was conducted at 5% uh, um, carbon dioxide, 60% relative humidity, and 23 degrees for all these different mixes. And as you see here, um, the geopolymer mixes are not as resistant um, to carbonation. So that's um, the carbonation depth for the different mixes and at different times. Then we have um, Portland cement concrete uh, plus fly ash or Portland cement concrete fly slag. Um, we have a lot higher, we have a lot less carbonation. That's largely because of the resistance of Portland cement to carbonation, which absorbs the carbon dioxide and stops the progress further into the concrete. Resistance to crowd penetration was measured by the rapid, um, so-called rapid crowd permeability test method, the SPMC-1202. And again, as you see here, um, the criteria which are set for uh, this test determine whether the mixture has low permeability, moderate or very low. And the fly ash, um, and slag mixtures all showed much lower permeability 
compared to Portland cement concrete. Crowd diffusion was measured uh, based on no test, and here you see the crowd penetration profiles. Uh, again, the Portland cement concrete had a lot less resistance to penetration than these mixtures, and 4060 uh, flash slag mixture had the lowest uh, crowd permeability. The crowd parameters Crowd diffusion parameters were determined by care fitting, and here you see um, that the crowd diffusion coefficient is also a lot less. Uh, creep behavior of concrete, um, I'll go through this rather quickly. These are the loads that the specimens were subjected to, and uh, again here, uh, based on basic creep coefficient and a specific creep, we see that the slag with geopolymers might undergo more deformation and the loading than other geopolymer concrete. And um, the increasing uh, rate of uh, creep means that we have to really monitor the system to develop better criteria. Abrasion resistance were also tested, and here we see that uh, comparing the Portland cement with geopolymer, um, the top part, these were actually cast upside down, so the top actually means bottom uh, cast, which is denser. We get um, much less um, wear, and essentially the geopolymer concrete shows here that has a lower resistance to carbonation. Large beams were also cast and tested um, um, for ductility and uh, strength, and two types were used. Um, here we have uh, different designs at 100 uh, millimeter spacing for stirrups and 250. And they were tested by three point and four point um, test, flexure tests. And this is the outcome of the test. You see the geopolymer concrete has a very low area of cracking whereas Portland cement concrete has a much larger area of more cracking. This we thought was essentially because of a much stronger bond of the geopolymer concrete to the steel. So the conclusions of experimental work, um, uh, I will go through these rather quickly. Essentially all the Australian materials which are used, um, which are accepted for normal Portland cement concrete can be used. We found that the fly ash-based geopolymers exhibited um, some delay in setting uh, and lower strength, um, and uh, this meant that um, this material would not be good for field application uh, as tested. It, when we did heat curing at 60 to 80 degrees, there was no problem. So fly ash-based geopolymer concrete could be used for um, precasting. Um, we can broadly say that we can make very strong and durable um, geopolymer concrete based on the mixes that we tried, 40-60, 60-40, and 50-50. And sodium silicate uh, of 4 to 6% 
measured as sodium oxide uh, would be a suitable alkali activated content and the water to binder ratio of 0 0.38 to 0.42. Uh, and this water binder, similar to Portland cement, has a very important effect on the strength development. So, um, in terms of um, uh, geopolymer concrete compared to Portland cement concrete, we have satisfactory performance in terms of strength development workability. We have superior performance in terms of dry shrinkage, sulfate resistance, crowd penetration, and AAR. And uh, we have poorer um, uh, performance can mostly in relation to carbonation and VPD. In terms of load deflection, um, so for a given reinforcement configuration, the load bearing capacity of Portland cement concrete and geopolymer concrete were similar. Uh, I didn't show you the curves, but this was the conclusion. And for a given testing procedure, whether it's three point or four point, the stirrup spacing didn't have any effect on the load capacity. Um, but geopolymer concrete exhibited a lower ductility, which was largely because of a stronger bond to the <laughs> reinforcement. So by adding more stirrups, um, then we, we were able to improve the ductility. Okay, this uh, brings my um, part to an end. Uh, please feel free to submit any questions you have in relation to the slides that are presented. And I'll now pass over to Fred to continue his section. Once again, good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Um, what I'd like to highlight from the outset in terms of my presentation is that, um, first of all, Vicroads has been involved with the applied research and specification and applications of geopolymer concrete for the past 10 years. Um, another important thing to emphasize is that geopolymer concrete is not a black box science. Okay, there has been a fair bit of research that went into it, especially from chemical engineers and the like, concentrating mainly on mechanical properties such as, um, as uh, compressive strength. However, um, geopolymer concrete can still be used in a number of applications um, based on following certain um, um, procedures which are uh, similar to um, conventional concrete. Now, one of the pertinent questions that I always uh, hear is in relation to whether I would recommend, based on our experience, the use of geopolymer concrete. And the answer is yes, in terms of general concrete piping, such as uh, footpaths, such as joint use paths and the like. Uh, yes, to commercial construction uh, in terms of uh, a 40 to 60 year design life. Uh, and yes, to reinforce concrete pipes. Um, a qualified yes to the structural concrete with respect to um, section 610 or BID up in New South Wales. And the reason for that is, and, and I would use it on a state, on a job by job basis based on exposure to risk. The reason for that is that I still believe that there's further work to be done in terms of optimizing the mix designs, the use of chemical admixtures to essentially minimize the amount of water that goes into these mixes, similar to what we used to have in conventional concrete in the late 70s and 90s when the first generation of, um, of water reducers and, and chemical admixtures were introduced, and also to minimize the amount of VPV 
uh, with respect to Section 610. But if you actually address the, the, the first two items, you will actually uh, minimize the amount of VPV as well. Now, what I'd like to emphasize uh, further to what Ahmad was saying, a conventional concrete is characterized by uh, a calcium silicate hydride-based system, whereas the um, uh, geopolymer concrete is characterized by an amorphous or non-silicate-based uh, aluminosilicate-based system. Uh, Ahmad discussed the geopolymerization process, so what I would like to emphasize is you can see up the top there very similar materials, higher than about uh, 80% flyer, slag, silica, fumo combination, up to about 20% alkaline components, which is a significant amount, and they can be reduced by using superplasticizers. And obviously, the standard sandstone uh, um, ingredients. Uh, very importantly, geopolymer concrete can reduce the uh, carbon footprint or CO2 emissions by something like 40 to 80%, because one has to remember that uh, the alkaline activator will actually reintroduce. Uh, CO2 into the system. However, you can see that it can be reduced if, if we optimize the mixes. Um, just to give you some appreciation of the geopolymer mix design, very similar to conventional concrete, you can see up the top there the uh, cementitious uh, materials, the uh, flyers, the slag, no cement or very little cement in some of the systems. The main difference which creates the glue is the sodium silicide or sodium hydroxide or solid sodium silicate, you can see there that if you use solutions, you've got an OHNS problem, and therefore people are veering away from that into sodium silicate systems. Um, you can see that there's no water reducer or superplasticizer. There's some entrainment in these systems to facilitate workability, but if you've got no superplasticizers, you've got too much water, you've got the relatively higher water cementitious material ratios, too much water means higher VPV. Now, just to re-emphasize, with the flyer-based systems, because of the law, you can see with, in terms of the uh, chemical componentry there, you can see that there's very low amount of calcium oxide in the flyer system, so that's more suited to, it's not suited to ambient conditions in terms of curing, in terms of strength development. It's more suited to pre-casting operations where you've got accelerated steam curing or or heat curing conditions, whereas the slag or slag plus flyer systems, you can actually use them in passive uh, in the field uh, environments, and you can see the main difference there with the higher calcium oxide, as Ahmed was uh, highlighting previously. Um, it, it's important to emphasize that um, VicRoads has been a good citizen in terms of reducing the carbon footprint of concrete because we've been specifying and using supplementary cementation material since the early to mid-1990s in our specifications, and therefore we've been using green concrete for a long time, achieving reductions in the of CO2 of the order of 15 to 30 percent per cubic meter, both in the structural applications of 610, but also in the general purpose uh, um, concrete construction for other applications. Now, as a result of the applied research and, um, and, and other work that we've done, we introduced geopolymer concrete and we defined geopolymer concrete into Section 7.0 through uh, for general concrete piping, as I've indicated previously, for footpaths, for joint use paths and other applications. Essentially, within normal concrete strength developments of 20 to 32 MPI, 
similar to normal co class concrete. Uh, the construction requirements are very similar to uh, placing, compaction, and etc. sampling and testing, the same as conventional concrete. However, due to the greater susceptibility to unsatisfactory practices of geopolymer concrete, either in the batching plant or on site, we've um, basically made those requirements similar to, um, to Section 610, more in line to Section 610 within 703. So, uh, as a summary to what we've done with the uh, specification work, you can see there that we've introduced it into Section 703 and defined it, the first specification in the world as a standard specification to do so. Then we've got the other specifications, as you can see there, for reinforced concrete pipes, for drainage pits, and, um, and uh, inc incidental work for, for other works. Now, in terms of applications, you can see there that we first um, uh, manufactured something like 190 uh, precast footway uh, panels uh, for a footpath on, on the bridge of a Westgate Freeway, Salmon Street Bridge. Essentially, the same processes in terms of precasting uh, operations. You can see in the middle there, at the bottom, uh, we are testing for air entrainment because air entrainment was actually in these systems. A fair bit of uh, um, slag, and that's why it looks green but it also looked green in the conventional concrete. We've used something like 85 to 90%, maybe 85% to 90% uh, slag and a little bit of cement to kickstart the process. Um, we then constructed landscape by uh, retaining walls uh, on a bridge over the Yarra River back in 2009. We've installed reference electrodes within these walls at the lower part, middle and higher part. And we've been monitoring these for a very long time, something like uh, eight or nine years. And essentially we can see that um, uh, this type of concrete can, and, and as uh, Ahmed was indicating before, it can actually protect the steel reinforcement. Uh, we've also used it on bicycle paths and footpaths, significant lengths of this type of, uh, of construction. We even used it as a no-fines geopolymer concrete uh, on the Western Ring Road. Uh, then we constructed one of the largest or longest uh, projects uh, uh, back in 2012 from a major infrastructure project, a 450 long landscape retaining wall, as you can see there on the side of the Western Ring Road, using an equivalent 400 to 40 uh, MPI uh, microwave concrete. Uh, the only um, difference is that the uh, VPV was slightly higher than what's required. We've also used uh, another example, the uh, precast footway deck planks on a bridge down at Longford, which is something like 250 kilometers southeast of Melbourne. Uh, and it's good to say that, um, you know, most of the ingredients were actually delivered on site in, in the truck that you see there. And then the water, the fibers and the alkali activite that were added actually on site. Uh, essentially, um, you can see there the normal standard practices and then the installation of the panels on the footway bridge. And it has been monitored since then and it's performing reasonably well. Uh, in fact, all of those um, applications have been monitored and they're performing uh, reasonably well. Now, in terms of pipes, we work with a um, reinforced concrete manufacturer down here in Victoria. And um, essentially you can see geopolymer pipe, pipes, they've been tested to the um, requirements of um, of uh, 4058, 
um, which is the Australian standard for reinforced concrete pipes. Uh, you can see the limitations that we've got there, and uh, essentially the geopolymer pipes, in the same way as conventional pipes, have exceeded those both for uh, proof loading as well as ultimate loading, with the uh, geopolymer pipe performing slightly better. In terms of um, average absorption, which is in the Australian standard and the VPV, you can see the results there with, uh, and, and these tests are very similar, water absorption in the Australian standard for pipes and VPV. There's some differences, but essentially you can see that both the geopolymer and conventional pipes are complying with the absorption requirements. They're also complying with the VPVs to section 610, uh, even though the geopolymer is still slightly higher. And I can say that based on those VPVs, the carbonation on these pipes would be similar to our structural concrete, which we don't really have much um, carbonation. We do have some, but not to a, a significant extent. So the lower the VPV, the lower the interconnected void spice within the, or the porosity, the lower the, the uh, carbonation would be in those systems in any case. Um, you can see there some practical applications. You can see the storage of these materials inside. The actual lifting, the actual placement and backfilling is very similar. This is the first um, uh, project that was done in Australia in terms of uh, down at Princess Highway West in Winchelsea of a uh, major project with significant lying of um, geopolymer pipes. Uh, you can see another couple of projects on the left. It's a um, it's a local street in Bendigo, and the right is the um, Bendigo Airport, again with geopolymer pipes complying to Section 701 of our standard specifications. Um, here we've got Dudley Street, which was part of the regional rail link a few years ago, again using a VR440. Um, um, Right concrete or Vicroads right concrete. Once again, you can see the um, manufacture, the lifting, the curing of these units, and then the installation. Uh, and it's uh, performing reasonably well. I've been monitoring this for some time now and uh, with acceptable performance. Um, other applications that we can see there is um, okay, uh, the, um, the manufacturer down here is utilizing uh, this type of uh, concrete. Uh, for uh, housing constructions, for commercial construction, slabs and footings on uh, uh, developments around the place. And you can see here an example of a library building which was uh, constructed with precast panels, uh, three meter wide by nine meter high, as you can see from the lifting there. The whole building using geopolymer concrete. The slabs on ground were actually geopolymer concrete as well, the footpaths and, and associated uh, works. Now, one thing that needs to be rem uh, remembered in terms of geopolymer concrete is that this type of concrete, from a practical point of view, okay, conventional concrete can be susceptible to too much water additions, as we know, uh, but geopolymer concrete can be more susceptible and less forgiving. And therefore, we need to be using good practices and procedures within um, batching plants with uh, um, people that know the, the technology, that understand the technology, so they don't or stuff up either using too much water through the moisture content in the aggregates, the sand, the stone, or too much water on the slump stand, or too much water on site. Uh, because you can essentially, as you can see with the, ta um, the figures there, you can significantly reduce um, 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 
strength and you can increase the VPV significantly. Um, in terms of the impediments, this is impo very important to emphasize in, fa in, the, in the sense that, um, in my opinion, we still require further improvements in mixed designs. Uh, this type of industry did not think initially about permeability, about the durability. They were all, all about mechanical properties and all about strength. And that's the reason why they're using too much alkaline activators in these systems. You can see that with the sort of concrete that uh, uh, Ahmed was showing there, there was something like 13 to 15 percent alkali activators. In the systems that we used, it was slightly lower, but still too much. It was around, around about 8 to 10 percent, maybe 8 9 percent, but it was still too much. And therefore, we need to use less alkali activators and more of the chemical admixtures, like we do with conventional concrete. Um, in terms of further impediments, there is resistance to release of intellectual property, as Ahmed was highlighting. Uh, commercialization is still its in infancy. We we do have some commercialization in Victoria, and I've been um, to Woomba and Brisbane, um, but we still need more. We still need more uh, batching plants to produce in this sort of concrete. There's um, to some extent lack of interest in this technology by the mainstream cement and concrete suppliers, although there is a fair bit of um, research work that's probably happening behind the scenes, so they can be ready for the action. But in my opinion, if these people were actually adopting geopolymer concrete, this type of technology would have been miles ahead, because they're very experienced in what they do, in, in mixed designs, in the performance of their materials, and so on. So more experience is required to optimize the geopolymer mixes on a commercial basis. Uh, another important thing is that, okay, we've got weak road specifications which can be used as a stepping stone uh, for further work, uh, but there is lack of an Australian standard, and that's difficult to, to have because you've got a number of players sitting around the table, and some would be in favor of geopolymer, some would be not. Um, so thank you very much. Questions? Yeah, thank you, Fred. So we received some questions from the audience and we've collated them throughout the session, but thank you for sending those through. We've actually had a few questions regarding uh, carbonation uh, relating to slide 40. So if you go back to slide 40, so the question is, what is the reason why geopolymer concrete is highly susceptible to carbon carbonation but highly resistant to chloride sulfate? In my opinion, and obviously Ahmed would um, would have his own opinion, but in my opinion, um, with the geopolymer concrete, you can see that some of the test results, uh, carbonation, VPV, and abrasion are, are poor. And, and the fact is that you've got a higher interconnected void space. You've got greater porosity, and carbonation would actually uh, permeate into, into uh, the concrete and lower the alkalinity. Uh, you can see that with other concrete, such as the pipes, because the VPV is lower, the carbonation would be lower. Another point that I'd like to make, and I'm sure Ahmed would be uh, would differ, is the fact that the the chloride diffusion and rubbing chloride permeability um, mask uh, the test results. You've got a fair bit of soluble alkaline activator within the capillary porosity, and that's basically masking. Uh, the um, the results. The VPV picks that up and 
on the uh, another point to make is that I've seen some some examples where because of the higher high alkali activite, I even know these systems show low low um, chloride diffusion and low rabic chloride permeability. You still have uh, permeation and efflorescence coming through. If if these systems had low um, chloride um, ingress or ability to be densified, then they shouldn't be um, showing high uh, efflorescence permeating through. Uh, yes, as uh, Fred said, uh, we differ a little bit in relation to interpretation of these results. Um, essentially, in a geopolymer concrete which came from the field, we fully characterized this um, geopolymer by microstructure. And we found that the alkali silica gel or products which were gel type essentially um, had filled in uh, all the spaces between particles and converted some of the particles into gel. So this was basically forming a sort of impervious system. Uh, this is well reflected in the measurement of uh, chloride diffusion coefficient, which was very low in the geopolymer systems, and also the uh, rapid chloride permeability test. The carbonation is a little bit different. Uh, in the chloride diffusion, um, essentially the lack of interconnected porosity was responsible for that. In the carbonation test, we have a very high concentration of carbon dioxide, 5%, and we have very high alkali compared to Portland cement. So Portland cement normally would have a sodium oxide equivalent of 0.5%. Here we have 4% or 5%, or in some tests, people have even used as high as 15% sodium oxide. This is basically a sink for carbon dioxide. It just sucks in all the carbon dioxide. And then the first layer of alkali is neutralized and then it progresses further in. Uh, this is why we get very high carbonation depth uh, in geopolymer concrete. Uh, is not necessarily because we have higher porosity in the concrete, it's because of the high alkali content and high um, tendency of alkali to absorb carbon dioxide. Um, if the audience have further questions, we can probably elaborate more. Just, just a further point though, if we were able to reduce the amount of alkali activator in these systems based on uh, Ahmed's um, comments, uh, then uh, we, you improve the um, you know the microstructure of the concrete, you um, uh, reduce the um, the amount of alkali activator, you reduce the interconnected void space and porosity, and therefore you reduce carbonation. So if we reduce the alkali activator, it'll improve the VPV and it'll uh, reduce the um, the carbon dioxide ingress. Mm. Yes. Thanks but for the, clarifying that one. Yeah. As simple, actually, you can have a reduced strength based, if you reduce the alkali, you reduce the strength No, as because well. you're going to be using superplasticizers, reducing the water, and therefore you're going to be increasing the strength. Okay. 
Excellent. Thanks for clarifying. But well, we have another question relating to this slide from Maxim. So they've asked in relation to slide 40, so the W binder ratios of geopolymer concrete varied significantly between different tests on the initial slide, so the strength kinetic slide and the carbonation test slide. So, But slide 45, the WB ratio was 0 0.38 to 0 0.41 and 0.3 to 0.33 and 0.47 respectively. So can you comment on that? So there's kind of differences between them. So did I hear correctly a slide 45? Yeah, so the WB ratio was 0 0.38 to 0 0.41. Yes, 0 yes. Yep. Um, this, uh, the mixes that we developed in the laboratory were basically um, used to cast concrete in the field. However, in the field, there had to be some adjustments made to make this possible. And just the translation of the lab mix to the field mix has caused this change. This mix was actually produced by a concrete manufacturer. Um, and, and these adjustments needed to be made to make a concrete which could be cast uh, into elements like this. Um, this was essentially supervised at, uh, by Professor Sanjayan at um, Swinburne University and the concrete was produced by a commercial manufacturer. Okay, thank you, Ahmed. I'll go to another question. Uh, they've asked, so as geopolymer concrete helps in reducing CO2 footprints, are there any acknowledgements at government level in Australia? Um, I, I think I think there I think there is, I think there is because through Vicros, for example, there have been, um, you know, for a lot of lobbying through, you know, ministerial level. Um, at the Ostrods level, I know that uh, there have been um, discussions. There is um, there are a couple of um, organisations that are pushing uh, zero carbon footprint in concrete by the year 2050. And, um, you know, uh, different government departments, I think, are involved or, or they take an interest in it. But given the fact that Ostrovitz is, uh, is also pushing this, um, I think there is, there is to some extent. Um, I think uh, many people are probably interested in reducing their carbon footprint and using geopolymer concrete. However, because it hasn't been used widely and it doesn't have a an extensive history of use, people are not very certain. And one of the things that should be done is to promote these products. And in fact, uh, like this um, webinar by Ostroads is one of those actions and probably uh, more activity in terms of getting the product known uh, in the market should be undertaken. The, the reason why I put up my second slide there is to really highlight to design engineers and other people, but based on our own experience, a geopolymer concrete can now be used in a number of applications. Okay, we still need a little bit more time in terms of you know, full structural applications, because you can see from the testing that a lot of the properties of this type of concrete, shrinkage, creep, elastic modulus, and so on, are the same as even sometimes better than uh, conventional concrete. So once this type of concrete is used on a wider basis and, and, and on a commercialized basis, on a larger commercialized basis with much improved um, 
concrete mixed designs, um, there shouldn't be any further impediments to its use. Um, there is background work done by, for example, Swinburne University. I've been a reference point as well to, to produce uh, guidelines and stuff like that, uh, which is a precursor to a, um, to a standard. Um, so there is, I, I, think, I think design engineers and others should be feeling more confident about the specification of this type of concrete. Okay, thank you, Fred and Ahmed. Uh, we've received some questions uh, around the costs. So how much does it cost in relation to conventional concrete? I think at this stage, uh, the, the costly exercise here is the alkali activa, the, the sodium uh, silicide. Um, and that's the reason why I said it reintroduces some CO2 emissions. Obviously, that type of material needs um, you know, a fair bit of work to be produced. Um, I would think that, that a cubic meter of concrete would, at this stage, because it's not fully commercialized, it'll probably be around about 30, around about 30, $30, $30 to $40 per cubic meter more. Um, it could be 30. But I think that um, once this wider use, um, you know, it shouldn't be it shouldn't be any different to normal. In the old days, for example, when supplementary cement tissues were being introduced, people were saying because we're using these materials, it has to be a lot more expensive. And yet, and yet, uh, you know, the 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 cost of per cubic meter is is very similar. So. Um, uh, but um, I think that um, all the properties of the concrete should be considered in the life cycle costing of the product, not just in the um, upfront costing of the initial materials. So if you are um, producing uh, more durable concrete and uh, producing a lot of environmental benefits, these should be taken into account as well. Okay. And that's how Vigroth basically looks at it. Mm, okay. Thanks for clarifying that one. Another question is, for good quality geopolymer concrete, we need fly ash high in aluminosilicates, with the production of Class F fly ash likely to be wound down in the coming years with the shutting down of coal-fired power stations in New South Wales. Are there alternative sources or materials being explored? There's a fair bit of flash around the place. At this stage, um, it's also being imported in some areas of Australia from, from overseas. So China is a big place. They've got a lot of flyers. I think we'll keep going with it in terms of the availability of flyers for at least the next 50 years. Uh, but there's also slag and there's other, um, other uh, pozzolanic materials that could be used. Okay. Thanks for clarifying that one. Uh, the reason for using fly ash is that there is such a huge amount of surplus to the uh, concrete industry needs. And that's why we thought we will try to put in as much fly ash as we could in terms of um, not compromising the properties too much, but still using a fair bit of fly ash. Now we have metacarylinite, for instance, which is a source of alumina that could be used as well. Mm, okay. So how susceptible 
uh, geopolymer properties to interbatch or different supplies of fly ash from different sources? That's the point that I was making. Um, we found that, um, you know, in terms of the production, if, if for example, the, you see with conventional concrete, um, with conventional concrete in a batching plant, you supply 85% of the concrete to a slab on ground in commercial type applications. And then the other 15% is to uh, measure infrastructure and the checks and balances are different. We shouldn't be running two parallel quality systems in a batching plant. We should only be running one. And, and therefore, in terms of geopolymer concrete, if you actually bring up the, uh, the batching operators and, and, um, and um, drivers up to speed with the technology and have certain checks and balances in place, then I don't think it's an issue. And certainly with the people that have produced this type of concrete, these things have happened in terms of bringing up the knowledge base of people to be careful with the use of this kind of product. Um, I think uh, the question probably uh, asked uh, the, uh, in relation to the quality of the fly ash. Um, I don't believe that any fly ash should be used because it's called fly ash. You have to use it in terms of its chemical composition and neurological composition. Um, for instance, some fly ashes would have a lot of crystalline quartz and malite, which may not participate in the geopolymerization reactions. Whereas some fly ashes have a lot of uh, amorphous silica, which would be very good in terms of strength development and properties of geopolymer concrete. Uh, this means that the product should be characterized before it's used. But I believe things which exist in Australia, products which exist in Australia, are already characterized. So people know which one would be better for the geopolymer application. What I've indicated in slide two is that if, if you're using flyer, slag, and silica fume, which are uh, complying to the Australian standards IS35, ID2, 1, 2, and 3, then that's it. They're acceptable. There won't be any interbatch uh, variability because they comply with the standard. And they also comply with the Arctic spec um, SP43. Okay. Which, which state road authorities refer to. Yes, excellent. Thanks for clarifying. So we've received a question from Freddie. So it's asked, I have a question about the fatigue performance of geopolymer concrete. Did you study that property? Because uh, it's very important for payment design. No, unfortunately, fatigue was not studied. Um, Oh, okay. But you can see from, from the uh, flexural strength point of view, which is a very important requirement for concrete pavements, that uh, geopolymer concrete performs very well and it's uh, obviously slightly higher than uh, conventional concrete. Mm, okay, excellent. The other thing Never is that the limited amount of work which was done in the modulus test and we did loading and loading um, tests, uh, there was no hysteresis in the loading and loading, but of course that's very limited number of um, repetitions. Uh, fatigue might uh, need probably hundreds of thousands of those. That that was not undertaken largely because of the limited budget of the project. Mm, okay. So the next question is: Is it possible 
Is that possible geopolymer concrete mixed with healing agents? As nowadays, self-healing concrete is quite prevalent in European countries. Um, yes, of course, you have to try it. I mean, it's not um, possible to uh, just say it's okay with Portland cement concrete, it should be okay for geopolymer concrete. If uh, self-healing is to do with microbial systems, for instance, the uh, geopolymer concrete, which has very, very highly concentrated alkali, may not allow that um, organisms to survive. Mm, okay, excellent. And one last question is, have you used geopolymer concrete in road pavement application? Uh, not as yet, of course, although, as I indicated before, we've used it on joint use paths, and on joint use paths, uh, they are constructed for pedestrians, for cyclists, and for maintenance vehicles, which could mm -hmm. be of different tonnage, but we have not used it as yet in concrete pavements, but I don't see, I don't see any reason why it couldn't be used. I cannot see any, any obvious reason why it couldn't be used for uh, concrete pavements. Okay. Thank yes, you. If, uh, yeah. if there are more questions, we would welcome questions by email. Mm. You have got my email and Fred's email. Yeah. Yes. Uh, but yeah, we will start wrapping up this session due to time. Uh, we apologize if we weren't able to answer your question, but what we'll do is we'll, we'll collate the questions and answer them in, in a document and then we'll email that when it's available. But yes, we'll start wrapping up this session now. But before I let you go, I'd like to let you know of some upcoming webinars that we have lined up before we sign off. As you can see on this slide, we have three webinars running this month. Two are based on road safety infrastructure and then we have another session on the pedestrian facility selection tool. If you'd like more information or to register for these events, please go on the website shown. And for those who aren't aware, our webinars are now available as podcasts. Simply search for Osroads on your podcast app or you could use our RSS feed, so feel free to subscribe. And the last exciting news I'd like to announce is that Osroads has partnered with RMS New South Wales to bid to host the World Road Congress in Sydney in 2023. So this event is an opportunity to showcase some of our groundbreaking innovation and play an active role in shaping the future of our global community. Please support Australia and New Zealand's bid and join us in the Road to Sydney in 2023. And you can visit the website for more information. So to everyone who joined us today, we hope you found this session valuable and thank you for participating. If you do have any further questions, you can contact us. But as we close up, we appreciate your feedback. So please fill out a survey after the webinar. And of course, thank you, Armand and Fred. Thank you for taking your time today to speak. Thank you all. Thank you. Thank you. Goodbye for now. Until next time. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.